Welcome to Ascending Olympus, the Edge of the Crowds Olympics and Paralympics podcast. I'm your host, Jackie, and today on day 10 of Beijing 2022, I'm joined by Michelle. So how are you today? It's been an eventful day, and boy, do we have a lot to get through. <laughs> yeah, it's dramatic, but thankfully today there wasn't the drama of a blizzard so all the events at least happened and before we actually like get into the episode of today I do want to say we are going to talk about the Camilla Valieva situation and just the figure skating in general but that will be in the end slash second half of the episode so if you're just here for that probably skip till there's like baby 15 to 20 minutes to go just to see where we are as far as the conversation's going um and we're going to start with the bobsleigh which was one of the few outdoor events that was like untarnished by the blizzard yesterday and Australia's Brie Walker I said that maybe she'd be a medal chance if she um did similarly to what Kimberly Boss did in the skeleton and I'd say like to be fair she did very much do that today she got a second and a second in both of her runs but it wasn't quite enough to make up the difference between herself and Lauren Olte, Christine De Bruyne and Alana Myers-Taylor because she ended up in fifth overall um two pretty clean runs especially compared to the runs yesterday uh turn nine was bothering her heaps less but i think that the big story is that in the first ever monobob olympic competition kaylee humphreys is the gold medalist and she was also the first world champion of the monobob as well so it's pretty fitting that the first two times this competition has been run Kaylee Humphreys has gone out on top. Yeah, and it looks like, like, especially compared to the rest of the rankings, that she kind of had quite a big gap between her and her second place, Alana Myers-Taylor, um, uh, at the end of the day, which is, like, really impressive, given that the difference between uh, Christine De Bruyne in third and Brie Walker in fifth is, like, 0.43 seconds. Um, Kaylee won over Alana by 1.54 seconds. So it feels like a lot more now that you see kind of everyone else behind them. Yeah, and also the fact that Kaylee Humphreys is one of two athletes to put down a sub-105 run, and she had three. Lauren Olte is the only other athlete to have a 104 point something. It was a 104.74 specifically, but uh, that was in her first run, and her runs did not get much better. She had a seventh, a sixth, and a fourth, whereas... Kaylee was consistently in first, aside from her fourth run, where she was third after that run. Yeah, kind of you can tell there that what really kind of brought her through in the end is that kind of mental fortitude. For Brie to come second in her third and her fourth run is really, really good, uh, knowing that there would have maybe been a little bit of a pressure and knowing that there is a chance, so there would have been kind of increasing determination from that. Um, So imagine how Kaylee felt being like, look, I can't mess it up in my fourth run, otherwise, like... I've done so well so far and I can really, really get here. Um, Becoming third is probably not ideal for her in the fourth run, but like she had already kind of sowed the seeds beforehand in order to make that uh, hurt a little bit less. Yeah, like she really had to mess up in that final run to lose the podium. Um, A a few mistakes could have really seriously eaten into her. She was over a second lead at the start of the fourth run. But a few couple of serious mistakes could have still done that. But it would have been like had to have borderline crashed out to miss the podium. She was just that far in front of everyone. Um, And on top of it, like if you look at Brie Walker, um, yes, if we disregard yesterday, if it was just two runs and it was run today and that was the competition, which is what a normal World Cup event is like, she actually would have finished third. So she was the third best driver today overall with her second and her second. Um, and also a lot of credit goes to Alana Myers-Taylor, who was third across the first three runs and had the best time on the final run today to win that silver medal. But she was in COVID isolation for a week. And like, whilst, yes, it's not the same as like cross-country skiing, you still do have to use, like that push start is still taxing on your body and takes a lot of energy. And then you've also got to focus and drive the entire time. Like the effects of COVID on your body can still have an impact in a sport like bobsleigh. Definitely. And I think probably these athletes were impacted by the different format of the Olympics versus world championships and that kind of thing, where the mentality really does have to change to be like, okay, so more of my runs count towards my final score this time. And I can't just like, you know, throw off a couple of duds and proceed to do some good runs at the end. 
Yeah, and there's no knocking a fifth place finish at an Olympics. And we do get to see Brie again later this week. I think the competition starts on Friday, but it could be Thursday. It could be off by a day. Uh, in the two women bobsleigh where her partner is most likely going to be Kiara Rodingas, um, but it could be Sarah Blizzard if Kiara is not um, fit or has a couple of bad training runs. Definitely can't knock Bree's uh, fifth place finish here. It's still kind of the best uh, result from uh, an Australian athlete has uh, gotten in the bobsled in general. And that on top of Jackie Narragott getting a silver in the skeleton, as well as Alex Falazzo getting a 16th in the luge. That is uh, a new set of bests in sliding sports for Australia overall. Yeah, in every single event, we've done our best. Yes, Nick Timmings did finish 25th in the men's skeleton. But, like, even then, he didn't perform badly. And he came back from some poor uh, for early runs. So there is that as well. I think we've definitely outperformed this Olympics, generally speaking. But I think in the sliding sports, we've just, like, overperformed almost. And I'm excited to see Brie one last time. We're going to move on. And we're going to start with of our two freestyle skiing events today, the one that actually had a medal, which was the aerials. And I'll spoil it with Australia did not get a double podium. We actually didn't get anyone on the podium, but Laura Peel was the top qualifier today. She had a 104.54 in qualification and Danielle Scott had a 96.23, bit of fourth best qualifier. Um, sandwiched between them were Ashley Caldwell and Ju Mengkau. And look, that's some good company to be in. Um, that top six from the first qualification were excellent. Gabby Ash had a 77.17 in her first qualification run. She was finished 17th after that, which meant that she had to go through a second qualification run to make the top 12, similar to how Moguls does it. Um, and her second qualification run was really good. She had an 80.04 and she had some of the best actual judged marks. It's just that the degree of difficulty for the skill that she did on that specific uh, run wasn't high enough to give her a biggest. She gotten those marks on her first skill. She would have gotten like an 86 or something, which would have ended up putting her just on the cusp of making it in. Um, but then we had the finals and in final one, they got two attempts and look, the first run was not good for Danielle or Laura. Danielle got a 71.23, Laura got a 69.16. They both had falls on their landings. Then in the second run, Danielle did not do any better. Got a 64.79 to finish 10th at her third Olympic Games. <laughs> And Laura Peel got an 100.02. Did not have a great landing, but her skill level was high enough. And also, like, everything else was good enough to get her that big score. To be fourth in the first final, to go into final two, which is the final for the gold medal. Um, which meant she was starting third. She got, look, it wasn't the best run either. Um, she did have a fall at the end. It was not as bad as Konkan Yu's fall, that's for sure. She got a 78.56. She was trying a back full, 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 which is triple backflip with three twists, essentially. And her air form was great. It's just the fact that her landing was really poor. Uh, the big winner, who was also doing a back full, 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 was Zhu Mengtao. She scored an 108.61, which was the best score of the day. And the silver medalist from 2018, Hannah Hoskova, uh, got a 107.95. So overall, a pretty good day. There were four athletes trying a back full, full, full in the final. And only one of them landed it because Ashley Caldwell also fell on hers. She ended up in fourth. And Kongfenu, who had quite a nasty fall, she like sort of looked like she landed it and then face planted almost into the snow, uh, was also attempting it. So I think as far as being, I think it was the fifth woman ever to put down a back full, full, full on snow, um, that's gold medal worthy for sure. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, in a sport where you can fall and then still qualify because you have another attempt to do a, to to have a better run. It definitely puts you in good company and having that skill in your arsenal to bring out is a really good sign already. It looks like Shimental only had like only had did one run her first jump she got 103.89 and then she had a did not start for her second ju jump in that um final. 
Yeah, so that's a deliberate strategic choice, essentially, to conserve energy, because she already knew that she'd qualified by the time it was her second jump for that first final. Um, so she chose not to have an attempt, whereas Ashley Caldwell did have an attempt and did the back full full fall and landed it, despite the fact that she was the, in the top qualifying position and had already qualified. Um, and it obviously paid off for Jumankau and didn't pay off for Ashley Caldwell because, like, <laughs> one fell and one landed the jump so it's clear that like who it worked for and who it didn't work for but the opposite also could have happened today where she fell um and Caldwell like nailed it twice and like won an Olympic gold medal so I think that that's one of those strategies that is equally risky on both sides but equally rewarding on both sides yeah it does seem like for both of them it was kind of you know knowing your body and trusting your training that would have contributed the most to that final result regardless of which strategy they went for we're going to move on to the ski slope style which we had abby harrigan competing and before i even talk about results um the fact that abby even attempted to compete is like commendable in its own right one of the commentators after her first run was like oh like maybe she can try and make the final after this and i was like she's she's skiing with a fractured fibula like the fact that she's even trying to attempt a run I'm impressed by and I don't care if she finishes first, last, whatever. The fact that she's gone out and backed herself to be able to put any kind of a run down uh, is incredible. And the reason why she fractured her fibula is because she had a crash with another athlete out on the slopes and just was fortunate enough that it wasn't too badly broken, I guess. I, I still don't know how she was even skiing. But for her first run, she got through the first five sections reasonably well. She wasn't doing anything bigger than a 180 as far as tricks are concerned and then didn't do this final section, which is the big jump. Uh, so she only got scored a 16.10. And then for a second run, she got through all six sections and got a 26.31. So she finished 26 overall. Um, and there were only 26 athletes that started, but I don't think that matters when just the effort of going out there and even trying to compete is wild in its own way. <laughs> And this is her first Olympics, isn't it? Yeah, so it's her first Olympics. She'd originally qualified for three events too. So she qualified for the big air and the slope style, which are qualified for them together. And then she'd also qualified for the half pipe. The half pipe's still to come. Presumably she's going to withdraw from it um, just because like the slope style sounds like the one that is the easiest on your body of the three of them. And even then. All that gear must not be good for your bones. Yeah, and like granted, her like the team around her would have been advising her as to whether she can or can't compete, and also checking like how she, her condition was because she didn't necessarily need to even do a second run in this. She could have done that first run, and then it's official she's an Olympian. She's competed in her first Olympics, but she went for a second run and she got through the entire run just because she wasn't doing seven twenties or nine nine uh, hundreds. Like that doesn't matter. Like the fact that she tried to compete that's impressive enough for me and I think impressive enough for most of this country exactly and like you know like you know there is also the chance that she knew that people could fall and that result is there so that obviously she wasn't in medal contention but she didn't necessarily there was a chance that she wouldn't end up 26 out of 26 yeah and there was a did not start as well so like there were technically 27 competitors in the field but only 26 started so Oh, well, whatever I say to that. Um, we will move on to the people that actually qualified because the big name on everyone's lips, Eileen Gu, did not qualify in first. She qualified in third. Uh, her best score was a 79.38, which puts her behind Kelly Sildaru from Estonia and Joanne Killy from Norway, who both got 86.15 and 86 flat, respectively. Um, I don't think that's like too much to worry about. I very much am of the opinion that Eileen Gu will turn it out in a final and she's also still going to worry about a half pipe after this event as well. But look, a 79, when it's just qualifying, you're meant to be taking it easy, is probably a good, like that's a good qualifying score to be putting up anyway. Especially for her where the amount of events she's doing, she really does not want to like burn out too early and have nothing left by the end in two different events. Yeah. And there was such a big break between the big air and the slope style. So it's like, it's easy to see someone like burning out or like 
wanting to enjoy that little break that you almost have and then I don't know just not being ready for the event properly but I'm sure she is also a consummate professional. Another name worth mentioning is Christy Muir from Great Britain. She qualified in six and with a 70.11. And, and she's a silver medalist from the Winter Youth Olympics in the big air specifically. But at the same time, like if you can medal at the Youth Olympics or at the Olympics or any event really um, between big air and slope style, you should be able to mix it up a little bit and like we can see that through Tess Cody who we are going to talk about now <laughs> because Tess was competing in the big air snowboarding uh, she got a 74 in her first run a 54.75 in her second run it just went like for a conservative second run more than anything else it was like get this run down get it down clean and then you'll be good and she did that and then for her third run still on the conservative side but got a 62.25 um again she was doing uh sevens and nines rather than doing 1080s <laughs> um and so she had a combined score for over 136.25 because it goes off your top two scores combined but everyone's favorite Kiwi, Zoe sadowski uh, she's sitting in first right now after qualification, got an 85.50, went conservative for the second run, got a 62.25, was basically guaranteed to qualify at that point, and then had a 91.00 because she went big for that final run and has a combined total of 176.50. Um, puts her in good stead to win a second Olympic gold medal for New Zealand, which... I don't know, to win the country's first and second Olympic gold medals at a Winter Olympics, that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> Not many people have done that. Yeah, like these scores are pretty big, uh, especially compared to everyone else in these qualifications. So, you know, that she definitely knows that she can do it and there is a chance that that could happen. Um, currently it's probably about keeping like a like a strong mentality in the meantime and not being too excited about the possibility of winning the first two medals rather than just the first medal for your country she's also got a bronze medal in the big f in the past because she won bronze in 2018 uh, and the only other person in the event that was on that podium in 2018 which is anna gasser also qualified she was the gold medalist back then she's in sixth right now she had her two scores that counted were a 73.25 and an 80.25 um those are still pretty big scores for qualification because a lot of them were playing it safe and they will go for massive stuff tomorrow but the fact that she's in there, I'm like, ooh, Zoe's going to know what you've done and know what she needs to do to get that final score locked in and win a gold medal. Um, but at the I, same time, like, I can see Anna Gasser pulling out something wild. I find it really funny that both of them in their second run got a 62.25 to end up in joint 11. <laughs> yeah, just for that run, joint 11th of that run. And also, like, Japan has the possibility of a podium sweep. I think it's unlikely, but they do have the athletes ranked second through, uh, second, third, and fifth. So if Kokomo Murase, Reiwa Iwabuchi, and Miyabi Onitsuka um, pull out the three best scores, that'll be the first podium sweep of this Olympics. Japan also had a potential for a podium sweep in the men's halfpipe in the snowboarding. Um, you could have just had people named Hirano sweep in that final two, to be fair. So, like, look, <laughs> they weren't all related, but that still would have been very funny to see on a borderline. Would a cop Scotty James not getting a medal if there were three Hiranos on the podium? That's going to be but, in the record books of some kind if it ever did happen, just as your fun little trivia fact. Exactly. But the fact that they've got two that are in metal, uh, that are in like the silver and bronze positions, if qualifying was the only thing that counted, and it takes two best runs. Zoe's first run isn't like a 80 something and it's like a 70 something because she plays it conservative and then has a bad run. It's possible. It's also just as possible that Anna Gasser or Tess Cody can get onto this podium. Tess is realistically a top five bigger athlete but maybe not a podium athlete like there is a little bit of a gap between the top four and then like fifth through eighth generally speaking when it comes to the big air events but also like a really good day for Tess and she could have it <laughs> like it, I don't think gold maybe another bronze though it'd be really cool to see yeah like been a good kind of run for her at this Olympics so you know anything that she can get probably for her will be a bonus and would just be a huge reason for celebration for the rest of us
<laughs> exactly. Um, and we'll move on to the men's big air event because they because they also had qualifying today because they weren't delayed by you know a, a blizzard. And Australia's Matthew Cox was competing. He got a 56.25 in his first round, which is pretty respectable score. Had a 19.00 in his second run, and then had a 13.75 in his third run. And for some reason, <laughs> according to the scores, the run that counted was the 13.75 and the not, not the 19.00. So I don't actually have a reason or an explanation for that because generally speaking it's the top two scores that are the ones that stand but according to the information in front of me nope he got a 70 flat as his combined score which is 56.25 plus 13.75 i'll be fair though even if they did count the 19 he would still be in the same placement yeah it's not like his ranking improved it's more just like oh it'd be nice if his score improved but 70 it's a pretty number like <laughs> maybe that was the justification someone was just like mm, brain feels good let's keep it like this yeah and like to Matt's credit he tried to send it he just couldn't get the landing down I think he was going for a 1080 on that last attempt but the fact that he still was going for it when the chances were slim at best he needed to get over an 80 on that final attempt regardless um I think puts him in a really good position and it could help him as far as motivation goes during the world cup circuit over the next four years. But Max Parrott, the gold medalist in the slope style event this year, and he was, and he was the silver medalist in the slope style in 2018 as well, uh, is well and truly out in front with a combined total of 176.75. And he didn't have the best, like the singular best run of the day that actually, so that goes to the second place ranked snowboarder Takaru Otsuka, uh, who got a 91.50. But still, like to have two big scores like that and just not land your third run, so that's why it wasn't bigger, um, is pretty incredible when you've already got some uh, silverware going on already. Yeah, definitely keeping up that momentum. And, you know, these ordinals are a little bit more whack than what we saw in the women's. But, you know, once again, it's qualifiers. Uh, It's just the qualification. On top of that, I think that Max has an amazing story because he received a cancer diagnosis shortly, like a few months after his silver medal in 2018. Um, And the fact that he's come out and is still competing despite despite being diagnosed with Hodgkin lymphoma 10, like... There's a lot of things that your body goes through when you're dealing with cancer um, and the treatment and everything like that. So to be able to come back to your sport even um, and compete at a good level, let alone the best level, like I'm not saying that it's going to sway judges. It's going to touch people in the crowd's hearts though. Obviously a really unfortunate kind of thing to have happened to him. And I'm sure that everyone is kind of more on his side from it. Uh, seeing and that everyone definitely still wants him to do well so you know there's still kind of a lot of eyes on him and he's probably feeling super motivated from this and super sure of himself and his performance and what he can bring to yeah and I think that if he wins the second gold medal wins the second medal of this Olympics or even misses the podium in the big air event like this Olympics has been a success making it there Um, And I think it'll inspire a lot of people, especially young people that have gone through cancer um, or recently been diagnosed with cancer to not give up and think that there is like some sort of a future out there and that you can perhaps do something. Obviously not all cases, um, but still it's just as inspiring as athletes that um, compete in the Paralympics that have gone through cancer at some point in time in their life as well. But we're going to move on to the ice hockey because we have one of our two gold medal match competitors and uh, in news surprising no one, it's Canada! (laughs) Um, So I called it that it was going to be Canada that was the gold medalist before the games even started. Jess last night said that she would issue an apology if it wasn't a Canada-US gold medal match. Uh, So far, we're on track. The United States is about to play Finland as we're recording. (laughs) But Canada won, uh, Canada beat Switzerland 10-3. 
And just like to talk about how dominant this match is, they scored the five fastest goals in Olympic history in the first period today. Um, and Switzerland also got a goal in that period as well. So it just shows how dominant they are. They had 61 shots on goal for the match total. So a lot of work for Switzerland's keeper compared to Switzerland's 13, which means that Canada's goalkeeper saved as many goals as Canada scored. Yeah, it's pretty insane, but also like somewhat expected for Canada, like no surprises that they won no surprises they're dominant in the ice hockey um some surprises that they keep breaking their own kind of weird records (laughs) Records. here and there I guess and like being like oh I didn't realize that was a thing you could get another record for but it's Canada sure here you go and also like to show like just how dominant Canada is two of Switzerland's three goals were scored during power players which means that someone was in the penalty box for Canada at the time And Canada was slightly more disciplined today. They only received eight penalty minutes and only served six and a half of them because of those goals that were scored. But yeah, it's going to be an interesting one against the United States, most likely. I don't see Finland beating the United States. But then again, Finland did absolutely smash Japan two days ago. So never say never, but also like it's very unlikely. Yeah, it does feel like in these team sports, while the ice is slippery, it's kind of less slippery than it is in the individual sports. <laughs> yeah, they're also nice and padded up and have helmets. So it's a little bit more protective aside from the fact that like they push each other into perspex glass, push each other into the ice, have sticks that they can kind of hit each other with. No immediate deductions if you fall. But we're going to move on to the figure skating and look, There's drama. We're going to talk about the drama once we've talked about the ice dance. So bear with us. Um, And the ice dance gold medalists, to no one's surprise, is Gabriella Papadakis and Guillaume Ciceron, who, after breaking the world record in the rhythm dance, broke another world record, which was their own world record uh, by breaking the combined world record score because they scored an 136.15 in their free dance, uh, which was slightly less than their already standing world record from 2019 at NHK Trophy. Uh, But it was enough combined with their world record from the rhythm dance to break the combined world record. So... They're all within a point of each other, those 2019 scores and the 2022 Olympic scores. But still, like, (laughs) two world records at the one Olympics, that's something that we expect to see in the men's or the ladies, perhaps. Not so much the ice dance. Yeah, and also when the men and the women do it, it's like points, like five points, two points, (laughs) four points, not like tens and hundreds of points that we're talking about but this quad has been characterized basically by Papadakis and Cicerone just breaking their own records and coming in and like sniping golds whenever they choose to compete and then when they don't compete then you know they fall a bit in the standings and no one's worried yeah the the change to the scoring system following 2018 definitely was at the advantage of Papadakis and Cicerone But also, like, let's talk about this PCS mark. So that's your personal component scores because in their composition marks, in the rhythm dance, they got seven out of nine tens. In the free dance, they got all tens. So nine judges gave them a ten for composition, which that's pretty unheard of unless it's at someone's national championships. Um, And they also got a 9.96 for their performance, which reflects very much that they probably got seven tens and one and two 9.75s a 9.79 for transitions a 9.93 for interpretation and a 9.82 for skating skills so those are big scores they are the top ranked scores for each element across the entire competition and look whilst they don't have the most interesting free dance out of everyone um it was very clean. It was very pretty. Also, Papadakis's dress was gorgeous, but that doesn't count towards scoring. Um, and a lot of the elements that they do are very difficult compared to what some of the other teams are doing. It's just, 
everything in that package all coming together is like give them the Olympic gold medal this year. Yeah, like the reason why they didn't beat their NHK world record here was because they got dinged on a couple of levels, which is on part of the tech panel. But from like a judging panel perspective, they got really high GOE and they got really high TCS. So um, congratulations, you broke ice dance scoring. To be fair though, I think that their score would have been less if some of the other scoring wasn't as high because Sinitsina and Katsalapov, who are the silver medalists, got 131.66. That's probably too high. Um, they Their scores were just like, it looked like it was more like a 129, 128 kind of program. Whereas Madison Hubble and Zachary Donahue got a 130.89. They were probably actually the second best in the free dance today. Um, that's a little bit opinion based, but also just uh, I overall I thought that like the things that Sinitzer and Katsalapov should have been dinged on, they didn't get dinged on enough kind of thing. Whereas Hubble and Donahue were very clean aside from one lift where uh, Zach Donahue's arms were completely flexed, whereas there is meant to be some level of a bend, and they did receive a minus one deduction because of that lift. And then Madison Chalk and Evan Bates, who have the Alien Daft Punk program that everyone is talking about and is as close to going on viral on social media as it can be, got a 130.63. And they definitely got too high of a score because I would have put them around where the Italians and the Spanish are probably more than anything else, which is that's in the 124 to 121 range. Yeah, it's difficult to talk about the ice dance scoring kind of in this quite entirely because a lot of the scores have felt quite ridiculous and obviously we've talked about time and time again that ice dance is the most politicked of all the um skating disciplines so that's a little bit to no surprise but like Jackie and I have like a continuous discussion about Sinitsyn and Katsalapov's twizzles and how terrible we find them and how highly they still get scored on them. So we're kind of, even though Jackie says, you know, this is a 129, I sometimes think like if I were to like judge from scratch and just have like, you know, go into a room, read the rule book, come out, judge. I don't think I would have even given them a 129. Yeah, this program. is based on like the way that judges have been scoring that we're making these assessments on essentially. And to be fair towards Sinitsner and Katsalapov, this is the best their twizzles have looked in years, just possibly even period. Um, but that doesn't mean that <laughs> those twizzles are also as good as someone like Hubble and Donahue's or more specifically, their own teammates, Stepanova and Bukin, who probably have some of the best twizzles in ice dance if they were just that little bit faster. Yeah, if they covered a bit more distance, had a bit more speed, they definitely, they should be the ones who get those like fours and fives in GOE for the twizzles. All in all though, this individual event was a little bit of a flawed event for all these top teams. Everyone had like little mistakes here and there or definitely weren't on their best performance. If you've seen kind of the team event at all and if you compare the programs, a lot of these skaters did do better in the team event, just looked a little bit cleaner, were a little bit closer, a little bit tighter. So it's for them to get these scores that are all higher than their team event scores as well is also something that kind of we look at with like a bit of a slanty eye. We're going to move on to the drama um, because, look, it is the biggest story of this Olympics. I think that no one is going to pretend like it isn't. And uh, the ruling from the Court of Arbitration of Sport came in today and Camilla Valleva has been allowed to compete. Now, that naturally caused an uproar just around the world um, and for good reason too because how is it that someone that has tested positive for a banned substance is able to compete? Uh, the Court of Arbitration of Sport is fairly like clear-cut in their reasoning. It is essentially because she's 15 and so if she was a year older it's much more likely that the provisional suspension would have been reinstated because they are a protected person until they're 16. On top of that there is the element of this test was done all the way back in December um, and the fact that it took, I think it was like 43 days for it to come back is one of those, it's just unfortunate that it happened during the Olympics. We would, and the Court of Arbitration of Sport did say that it was just like this, we wouldn't be dealing with this if it had have been brought back in the typical like 10 day window that it normally does. But they're not allowed to test the blood samples in Russia because of the, um, 
state-sponsored doping program. And so it had to get sent to Sweden. And there was some sort of COVID outbreak, I think, just like right around that time. So it just took ages for all of these samples to get processed. Ultimately, though, a lot's happening. <laughs> like, so the IOC has officially said that we will not be having a medal ceremony for the team event all like sorry with the IOC has officially said that we will not be having a team event for the uh, the IOC has said that we will not be having a team event you want me to take it over (laughs) no I've got it I've got it I'm just it's the medal ceremony the IOC has officially said that we will not be having a medal ceremony for the team event period and if Valieva is on the podium for the women's competition we will not be having a medal ceremony for that either because otherwise there will have to be the medal swapping kind of drama that goes on. So they would choose to hold a medal ceremony essentially once all of this concludes, which could take years. It could take months. We could have a medal ceremony as early as March at world championships. Um, I think that's very unlikely if it gets resolved that quickly. I think a lot of questions will be getting asked because a lot of these water cases do take a long time. Then additionally, the ISU, so that's the International Skating Union, has declared that we will be having 25 uh, women skaters in the free skate if Valieva qualifies. The natural assumption is that Valieva is going to qualify. She's broken the world record twice this year alone. Um, And yes, whilst there is all that stress, to not qualify, she's going to have to get a score that is sub 60, possibly even in the really low 50s, depending on how this competition plays out. Um, So that is great for an athlete that has not tested positive for a banned substance ever because they are going to get that berth um, regardless of whether she's competing or not. It does make it a little bit weird for how they're doing the free skate because it's going to be that there are seven skaters in the first group and six skaters in all the rest of the groups, which normally it's just six, 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 or they do like break it up into fives. But they only have one ice resurface in a free skate of a major ISU competition or at the Olympics, for instance. And so as a result, they have to like make it a little bit funky. So that first, that first group, that like warm up is going to be interesting. They're gonna have those athletes gonna have to be really careful around each other. But I think the fact that it's been like flat out, no one is going to be disadvantaged by like a decision that's going to get made later on. And it does very much seem like the IOC and ISU are acting under the presumption of she is going to get suspended. Um, means that like no one missed out just because they were ranked 25th when someone that is there under a lot of grace from the court of arbitration of sport (laughs) is competing yeah it's kind of balancing out of this kind of fairness and like equality across the board that you see happening here because one of the justifications for Valieva kind of being able to compete as well as kind of you know if it turns out that she um doesn't get suspended or like you know she get all of these kinds of accusations and things get resolved and it turns out that you know she would she was fine then she should be able to compete and it would be unfair if under those circumstances they had suspended her at this point in time and not let her compete at all so to balance that out you have the 25th best skater in the short program also able to do the free skate um which i think you know is really kind of good to see that this kind of initiative has been taken in order to ensure that that happens There's going to be a lot of questions still. This is definitely going to impact the performances of Valieva, but also her team and training mates. Um, So the entire ROC team is now kind of much more up in the air than we started out thinking entering these Olympics. This case and this saga has basically kind of haunted Jackie and I throughout the entire Olympics. The team event started before the opening ceremony and the women's still hasn't happened yet. Yeah, and we still haven't seen the pairs either. Like this figure skating, this is 28 years on, very much um, Harding and Kerrigan-like. But it's like, oh, just the will they, won't they compete? Will they, won't they receive bans later on? Um, I think it's very likely that there are going to be individuals in this, regardless of the result, uh, as far as the legal matters are concerned, getting banned eventually, because WADA and Rosada are both investigating uh, Camille Valieva's team, which includes doctors, her coaches, choreographers, 
presumably even possibly her family i'm not 100 percent on that but like the her team is going to get investigated possibly something's going to come out of that but also there is just going to be damaging effects within this sport regardless for this team because they have held a very tight grip on women's singles for the better part of eight years now and whilst it looked like uh, in the 2020-2021 season, maybe they were losing some of that power because two of their top skaters did leave. Those two skaters came back for this season and Trusova is at the Olympics under the Sandro Sevigny, uh, Terry Tuberetsi camp. Valieva and everything she's been through, if she can put out like a clean program, um, it will be impressive just because of all the emotion that has gone on. Definitely. And you have to, given how much the press has been around and given how much this kind of entire scandal has taken over a lot of the Olympic narratives, you must imagine that the judges are also aware of these things. And skating is like these scored sports do have a degree of politicking from them and previously the Atari Tuperetsi camp has actually kind of really cashed in and banked on a lot of the goodwill that they have kind of earned from consistent performances and always churning out these skaters that do really well so the reputation of being at this coaching um being with this coach has been a good thing for the skaters but now it seems like it could be the reverse and it could be a bad thing because of all these investigations the scandal with Valieva might also impact the scores of Shabakova and Trusova and in an instance where that is a possibility and that is the case that ROC podium suite becomes less and less likely by the moment. On top of that I think that it's very frustrating for these athletes and also for the NOCs that are involved very few NOCs have spoken out on this at all the United States in particular were the first ones that like really made a statement um, about clean sport and everything involved with that and I understand why the United States has that mentality both they are the team gold medalists if Valieva alone gets disqualified like let alone the Russian team getting disqualified and it wouldn't surprise me if the Canadian NOC does make a statement or has made a statement that I just haven't seen yet um, because they are the ones that are the predicted bronze medalists. Japan is very reluctant to speak out on these kind of things just because they don't play the politics game the same way that some of the other big federations and big NOCs do. Their athletes are good and their athletes a lot of the time win gold medals just because of how good they are. Um, whereas the United States has gone a little bit scorched earth on it. Um, and we've also seen a lot of people in figure skating, both past and present, speaking out about this. So 2010 gold medalist in the ladies, Una Kim spoke out about it on her Instagram. Um, Johnny Weir has spoken out about it. Even uh, Katarina Witt, who is a two-time gold medalist from 1984 and 1988, has said that this situation is bad. And people that aren't in favour of the age limit getting raised have suddenly become very much in favour of it because value of even being able to compete, what when you're listening to this will be tonight because it starts at 9pm Australia time, um, is purely based on her age. And the fact that it very much comes across as the sentiment is that if you get caught and they doesn't get come, it doesn't come up early enough, you're going to be allowed to compete provided you're under 16 is fishy and people don't like it because it means that what so you can break the rules in juniors all you like that's not actually what it means um and i the ioc and the international skating union can't do anything about valieva competing at this point in time that's the real thing that i think people aren't getting when they are like blaming ioc they're blaming the isu and they're blaming WADA even is because of the court of arbitration of sports ruling all they can do is make changes to make sure that the athletes that are competing are given as fair of a shot as possible in the competition. Yes, athletes are not going to get that medal ceremony moment and that sort of thing if Valieva wins or if um, Valieva even podiums, but they are able to make the competition as fair as possible to these athletes. That's the most you can ask for them. I'm not in favour of a lot of the decisions that the IOC or the ISU makes a lot of the time. I think they make a lot of really bad choices and it often does advantage athletes or countries, especially the ROC, that don't necessarily deserve those advantages based on track records. But this is one of the few times where they have done absolutely everything within their power they can to make sure she's not competing because of those results. And also then help the athletes that still are competing. 
Yeah, basically. Another point about the NOCs is that US, uh, USA and Canada at this stage, with only the women's and the pairs to go, are probably no longer in contention for medals in those events. There is a chance that it could happen, but highly likely that they're not. Meanwhile, Japan will do have a chance at making the podium in the women's quite significantly if kind of this case with Valieva does go through. And also, like, in the pairs, they kind of also do have, like, a little bit of a chance-ish. So they still probably don't want to cause too much of a ruckus for that reason. But also, they don't want to put pressure on their skaters to have to face them being a little bit messy um, and potentially impact their performance in that way because we are relying on those skaters to be clean in order to make this podium at all costs. Yeah, and like, so the big thing that I will say, the biggest thing that anyone from Japan has even done in this entire situation is that Wakaba Higuchi liked the tweet that involved the uh, United States Olympic Committee statement. Um, and that, like, the fact that she even did that, people noticed that very quickly. And that's quite unusual. But I think that's also a very understandable sentiment for an athlete to have. And it shows that these athletes are aware of what's going on. And I think that's a big thing is like that some people would think that, oh, the athletes are quite insular. Everyone knows what's going on. Everyone's getting asked about it in the mix zone. Um, everyone's hearing about will they, won't they? Because ultimately there is a mental game that goes on with these other athletes, depending on who's competing and who's not competing. Sure, you get told, oh, the best athletes don't care about who's there. You care. You still do. Like, <laughs> ultimately, it is going to affect you, especially when Wakaba Kaguchi, Kari Sakamoto, and even a couple of the other girls now are realistic medal chances. Um, and the realistic medal chances potentially finding out six months later because Valieva eventually gets suspended or potentially Valieva doesn't get suspended. And then this entire thing looks like a circus um, and the fact that she was able to compete was the right decision or whatnot but she missed out on a medal chance if she doesn't medal because of the hub hub that's created and i think that the big thing is that a lot of people will meet like a lot of people will recognize as time goes on is that had that test came back at earlier um and before the olympics none of this would have gone down at the olympics and it wouldn't have been as big of a scandal because she would have copped a proper provisional suspension most likely definitely and the other part here that's really important, which is something that you touched on in an article, in an article that you wrote for Edge of the Crowd, is that because Ateri Tudberetsi has had this stronghold on women's skating, all of the skaters in the women's discipline has been impacted by this. Wakaba Hikuchi has a trip, like is going to do a triple axel. Um, is going to do a triple axel, probably in the short program, most likely in the free skate as well. And that comes not only from like the fact that she has a beautiful double axle and it, people have been saying since she was a junior that she could probably go for it, but it's because she sees these scores that these Russians are getting and she thinks that the only way she can be competitive is if she has one. Kari Sakamoto in kind of a few seasons ago was training quads. Thankfully, she hasn't got any of them in her program, but the reason why she felt the need to train quads in the first place was because she was falling off podiums with clean, beautiful and like performances to these Russians who may have had more flawed performances than her or have had PCS boosts that kind of out meant that they outscored her um, because they had this difficult tech content in their programs, which comes from kind of being that young and being able to do these jumps that um, if you don't have that kind of really light, really lean body type become much more difficult. So they've felt that that they've definitely felt that impact of a Terry on their sport. So now to see that she's under investigation and her skaters are under investigation and their ability to do these jumps that they themselves have not been able to successfully land possibly can be because of doping is huge. Yeah. As soon as if Camilla Valieva is found guilty and receives a suspension or a ban, um, ultimately her team needs to also receive suspensions and bans but it puts a cloud of suspicion over everyone else that is a part of that Sambo 70 camp regardless of whether they've tested positive or not um and that's really unfortunate because potentially those athletes are clean but there's also every potential that they're not clean this drug allegedly only stays in your system five to six hours so the fact that it was picked up at all like at a competition is an anomaly like that probably shouldn't happen 
Um, ultimately, I just think that it's it's unfortunate that this is happening at the Olympics. I think that the good thing about it is that there has been attention and global attention called uh, called towards Tuberetti. But what hasn't been called is that figure skating has a weird history with bands. We've got we currently have two skaters, one that was already basically retired serving a ban, and another athlete that received a ban for a what is technically a performance enhancing drug. She was out of competition and it was recreational usage, and that was a four year ban. The one that was a retired is a ten year ban. We've also had an athlete that uh, received a sixteen month ban because her boyfriend was using a performance enhancing drug in another sport. Um, and yes, there are rules as far as like being found guilty because you're associated with those persons. Because if you helped a cover up that sort of thing, you should also receive suspensions and bans. But this is the first time that there's been like no immediate punishment. And I think that the biggest example actually is that the United States had an athlete that received a year long ban for a substance she tests positive with because of her makeup. That was what it was found to be. And yet a substance that you have to ingest, it's typically in pill form, um, has come up in blood work and still not a provisional suspension because she's 15. Like, it's traumatizing for anyone to cop a provisional suspension, let alone a 15-year-old. Um, I think that Camilla should receive some level of punishment if she's found guilty. I think that, yes, her coaching team and everything need to receive more. But at the same time, like, you can't make different rules for people that are allowed to compete together. It's a really weird situation in this case of like senior, but not that senior, but senior enough to be at the Olympics, but not senior enough to cop the consequences to actions that they take that other seniors would. It's a really strange, like I'm surprised, frankly, that it hasn't come up earlier in hopefully like less large scandals. This idea that you can be a protected person at the Olympics only if you're in this like really small time margin of when you were born, basically. Um, it does seem like a problem. Absolutely. And it's dangerous. Like, that's point blank. It's dangerous what's happened, um, both as emotional safety, physical safety, safety, but also just, like, taking a banned substance, there's risks associated with that. Um, and it's not just the getting banned from the sport. Like, there's impacts through her health that could end up happening later on down the line. We're going to stop, and I'm sure we're going to have lots of opinions about this as far as the women's events going on. So luckily, we're both on tomorrow's episode, so we can discuss whatever happens and see how it affects these girls from ROC on top of how it's going to affect the other women competitors. But Michelle, would you like to share your social media handles tonight? Sure. You can find me on Instagram at m.ch.ll.g and you can find me on Twitter at m underscore ch underscore ll underscore g double underscore. So you take my name, you remove the vowels and you replace it with punctuation marks. <laughs> and you can find me at dodzy161 on Twitter and Instagram. This has been Ascending Olympus. You can find Ascending Olympus on Twitter and Instagram at Ascending Olipod. Ascending Olympus is part of the Edge of the Crowd network. You can find Edge of the Crowd at Edge of the Crowd on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. You can also read any of our stories about the Olympics, about other sports, or about culture at www.edgeofthecrowd.com. We're coming to you every morning at about 7 a.m. as far as the podcast is concerned, which is good for your drive to work or good for if you're just getting ready for work in the morning. So thanks for listening and we'll see you tomorrow.